It's a crazy world out there, and this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.org. You can also support the work of The Masculinist on Patreon at patreon.com slash masculinist, on Gumroad at gumroad.com slash masculinist, or on PayPal at paypal.me slash masculinist. And now for today's show. Hello, this is Aaron Wren, and welcome back to the podcast and our series on Urban World, Urban Church. In fact, this is probably going to be the last episode in this series. I've got a couple other things I could talk about, but I'll probably keep them in my back pocket um, for now. And so I'm probably going to wrap up with this sort of potpourri episode with a few observations that don't necessarily have huge takeaways, but they're kind of things that make me go, hmm when I think about about the city. The first one is actually something that my wife noticed when we were living in New York. She made some comment along the lines of, isn't it kind of interesting that we're always being told to, to identify more with our city and less with our country? Now, I may be putting that in a little stronger form than she did, and it really made me think, yeah, you know what? We are constantly told today uh, in the church that we should be very suspicious of nationalism, of identifying too much with your nation, uh, of uh, we're all, you know, our primary identity should be as Christians, secondarily identities of these other things, and if you put too much uh, too much uh, focus on your nation, you become an idolater or whatever. You, 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 see it. you can go to any of these sites, gospelcoalition.org, desiringgod.org, start doing searches on the word nationalism, and see what comes back. And of course, there's debate. There's some people who are more pro on it, but there's definitely this idea that, you know, identifying yourself or having a strong identity with your nation uh, is sort of something that is suspect or potentially sinful. On the other hand, in these kind of urban churches, you are constantly sort of directly or indirectly told that you should identify yourself more with that particular place. And, um, you know, it's it's like, you know, seek the welfare of the city. We're trying to bring shalom to the city. We're trying to do this to the, the city, the city, the city, the city, the city. And there's almost never any pushback on whether you've become too heavily identified uh, with the particular city that you're in, maybe in an unhealthy or even potentially sinful way. And I just did a little Googling you know, nationalism is a word that is very easy to search for. Uh, there's not an equivalent word of, you know, cityism out there. But I did search for things like idolatry of the city, making an idol out of the city, make an idol out of the city. And there are some hits out there, but they most mostly seem to do with um, the idols that are in the city. Uh, there's some passage, uh, you know, where Paul mentions he goes to a city and he was distressed to see all the idols there. Nothing that I found was about how people could make an idol out of the city as, as as a Christian. I think it's really interesting that they seem to want you to shift your allegiance from your nation to your city. And I think implicitly, 
from one particular set of people that they want you to like less and another particular set of people that they want you to like more. And um, I just really think there's there's something to this is like why if all these parochial identifications are so inherently suspect in the Christian world, why is it that you're allowed to celebrate your city and identify so heavily and strongly with it? And where, where should these identities come from? And I, I think it's a legitimate question to ask, um, but it's just one of those things that makes you go, yeah, what's what's really up with that? What's really up with that? So that's just one little observation that I would throw out there that you might find of interest. And again, if you find anything, uh, anyone finds anything out there that's um, where, where people are talking about, you know, making an idol out of the city or caring too much about your city, I would love to see it. I would love to see it because it's very easy to find things about um, loving your nation too much or being too too invested in your nation. A second little interesting thing, you know, I've mentioned this in the newsletter a few times, the Masculinist newsletter, which is um, the fact that these urban church movements are extremely heavily focused on starting new churches and very rarely seem to try to revive any old churches. And apparently there's some statistic or, or something that basically most Christian conversions occur in relatively young churches. So the churches that are drawing converts tend to be young churches. There's sort of analogy to a business here. Um, the businesses in America that actually add jobs on net are new businesses. They're businesses that are less than five years old. They're not necessarily small businesses, but they're new businesses. And as they mature, they, they add fewer jobs. And some, some similar effects uh, I've read is at work in churches. And, and, you know, you can see this. These churches start, they're very dynamic, and then they sort of settle in and, and you know, ultimately kind of stop making new converts. And so the idea is if you want to reach people, you have to plant a lot of new churches, start a lot of new churches. Um, you know, part of it's probably that, um, you know, when you start a church— that church is sort of strategically set up for the conditions that exist in that particular time. And as the world changes, that particular style or that particular setup is no longer quite as relevant as it used to be. So if you want to keep up with the times, you've got to sort of, you know, start a new one that's attuned uh, to that time. So, you know, maybe, um, you know, if you were operating in the 90s, then it was going to be books, right, that that were like a big media thing that people were into. Maybe today, you know, churches want to be much better on social media or something like that. I, I don't know. It's just, just an example. But there's a huge focus on starting new churches. Much, much rarer to try to find one of these older, struggling, dying congregations, maybe ones that have, you know, drifted off theologically uh, a bit, and revive those. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be on the agenda. And that's not just true in, you know, these big coastal cities like, you know, New York, San Francisco, et cetera. I mean, you know, I, you know, I even see it here in Indianapolis. You know, it's like we want to start new churches. And, you know, it's really, it, it's a little strange to me because it just seems that there's a disconnect, again, between people who, if you look at their mission statement, will talk about bringing cultural renewal to the city, bringing wholeness to the city, transforming the city. There's this aspiration to essentially transform and renew an entire city. At the same time, 
that uh, we have implicitly admitted that we can't even renew our own churches. And I think particularly in a religion like Christianity, where the central defining element is Jesus Christ raised from the dead physically, something with resurrection uh, from the dead at its core, that this idea that these all these other churches that are out there, these existing churches that are maybe stagnant, maybe they're declining, maybe they're into old, you know, just older congregations, maybe there's a lot of problems, that you can't turn those around, that those places essentially need to be written off, uh, and we got to go start something new. It just doesn't seem to really foot to Christianity uh, as a religion, I think, in the, in, in the way that it should be. And again, everything that I've heard suggests that it is extremely difficult, in fact, to turn around some of these churches. Um, but it just so happened I have been fortunate to have been part of multiple congregations that involved turnarounds of older churches. The place I attended church in Chicago, actually, they sort of built an entire methodology around this called the restart methodology, where they would partner with these congregations that had, you know, kind of shrinking aging populations, but people who weren't ready to give up on the gospel and essentially did a merger and a reboot very successfully multiple, multiple times. And one of the great advantages of doing that is that these older churches often have buildings. In many cases, they're owned free and clear uh, of any debt. And so, uh, again, this church was able to acquire church buildings in neighborhoods in Chicago like Lincoln Park, which are very expensive places to buy, um, which they'd never be able to afford if they were trying to pay cash for a building, just just through these kinds of mergers. Now they didn't do most of them were in more you know blue collar neighborhoods. You might say they weren't necessarily in these these high prestige areas, uh, but you know it was one that um, it was one that uh, they were able to do and get get property. The uh, same thing happened in my church in New York, which is kind of a turnaround and ended up with a, an Upper East Side you know, landmark building uh, that was incredible. Now, of course, the building was falling apart, which was one reason that, uh, you know, we were able to get it. Um, but on the other hand, when you look, when I look at what it costs to restore that building, it's far less than what Redeemer Presbyterian's East Side congregation paid just for the site where they want to build their new church. So it was much, much more capital efficient to have turned around another church. And so there are some very much practical advantages in that these older churches have property, they have great legacies in communities, and there's so many advantages to doing that. You think about the failure rate in starting up churches. You think about they're starting with nothing, no real... It takes it takes a very, very long time to build up something that is sustainable and is able to buy property and is able to do a lot of things to build up. It just takes a really, really long time uh, to make that happen. And definitely turning around an older church that has a lot of, you know, maybe a lot of challenges, maybe it's in a denomination, um, you know, that, that's gone a direction you don't like, then maybe there's property issues because of encumbrances through denominations, maybe there's, a, you know, massive capital issues, and, you know, maybe these congregations are just not interested in being being turned around. You know, it, it is true that I think a lot of times um, when organizations get into trouble, 
uh, a lot of people end up leaving. And so the people who are left are people who are very, very, very wedded to the particularities of that institution and who are often extremely hostile to change. You know, if they could have turned it around, right, they would have done it already. And so they tend to be very skeptical of anybody else who wants to turn it around. And they're also, you know, legitimate, call it legitimate concerns they might have. For example, what happens to the property? That they just want our property uh, are they just trying to put their hands on our stuff? So that there's not to say there's no legitimate problems here, but when you compare the immense failure rate of church startups, the fact that you have a very high failure rate in trying to turn around some of these older congregations, that is not necessarily indicative of the fact that you shouldn't do it. Again, I just think it's it's really another little thing. Again, it's not necessarily a huge negative. It's just one that you see that... Uh, when you when you when you when you want to transform the city or do something like that, and yet you can't transform existing churches and have to start afresh, yeah, I think there's something uh, a little off about that. Again, it just seems like we've we've resigned ourselves to following a classic corporate life cycle model where you start new, then you have your hyper growth phase, then you reach maturity, then you go into decline. We're just creating a whole bunch of new churches, most of which will fail early, some of which will you know, get to sustainability, some which will get big, but then they too, in turn, will mature, stop being effective, go into decline, and then nobody will turn them around. So we have to go start another one. I don't think that's the kind of um, church that we want to have. I think, you know, and this is, you know, obviously I'm talking more about the Protestants here. I think that the, the Catholic church um, has done a much better job of this in that, uh, in many neighborhoods, they have been able to, you know, reorient their churches around demographic change in the neighborhood. They've got this idea, uh, this parish model, this church is here, it's is a neighborhood church, it serves this geography, and, you know, the, the geography changes from, say, you know, Polish to Mexican, but they're able to add Spanish language services, they're able to do a lot of things. Um, the old Italian parish in my neighborhood, I live in the old Italian neighborhood of Indianapolis. The old, old Italian parish is, um, uh, been con- it's sort of been rebooted in, in a sense as a very trad Catholic Latin mass kind of thing. And I think they also have one of those um, uh, old uh, Episcopal slash Anglican parishes that, that came over through that special dispensation in Catholicism. So I think the Catholic Church is also one to look at as a model for, for some of these things. So I'd, I'd be studying went right, what went right. Uh, and 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 go with that. The third thing, and this is just uh, something that's a little little vaguer, I guess, but it's just one of those things that I just recognize as an anomaly. And a lot of times, I feel like I sense a disturbance in the force, maybe about something. I'm like, hmm, that looks a little off, or something about this just does not resonate with me. And so I file it away. And then many times over years and years of data collection points, connections start to be made and threads start to be assembled and you start to get a picture. So the significance of what I'm about to tell you uh, is not at all obvious, uh, but it's just one of those things, again, that makes you go, hmm, why is this? And that is the fact that how um, maybe tribal some of these um, urban Protestant churches seem to be, uh, or, or how sort of independent they are and how little they have to do with each other. For example, let me just make a very tangible, concrete example of that. So uh, in New York City, two 
really big, successful Protestant megachurches uh, that are rel- of relatively recent vintage in Manhattan. Tim Keller's Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which has several locations, and Hillsong, New York City. So I think Redeemer had about 5,000 uh, people. I think that Hillsong was somewhere around 8,000. I mean, Hillsong is an unbelievable phenomenon. You essentially have to uh, line up on the street sometimes uh, to, to get in. Uh, totally sold out. You walk, I mean, I, I, I went to a, a Hillsong, New York City about 10 times. So I've, I've definitely had some, uh, some good experiences of that and seen what it was like. It's really, it's kind of a rock concert uh, atmosphere, really industry, interesting, skews super young. But anyhow, two kind of really successful um, churches there. And uh, the, the lead pastor uh, until last week of, uh, of Hillsong, New York, was a guy named Carl Lentz. Now, Carl Lentz was just fired for adultery. And if you go to themasculinist.com, which is now up, you can actually go to the website. There's a blog there, and I put up a blog post with some thoughts uh, about that. Um, but, um, you know, Carl Lentz was the main guy there. You know, he used to pal around with Justin Bieber, all this stuff. So you have, like... Two churches, both media darlings, both very successful, both powerful models. To the best of my knowledge, they have never commented on each other. I mean, a couple years ago, I said, have, have these people ever talked about each other? So I Googled for Carl Lentz and Tim Keller and looked for every article I could find in which they had... Um, mentioned each other or talked to each other. And there are a lot of articles in which they are mentioned together, but I only ever found once when either of them commented on the other or commented on the other church. And that is when uh, somebody asked Carl Lentz in an interview what he thought of Tim Keller and Redeemer. He just made a sort of a general, hey, yeah, you know, I think we kind of both believe basically the same thing. You know, we're a little different, but we sort of believe, you know, the Bible, same stuff. Sort of a nice, pleasant, pleasant comment. But here you have these these two people. We're always told about how we're supposed to be in unity in, in the body of Christ and all that. And, and yet there's zero interaction between these two churches, I don't know if they collaborate or anything. They never. They seem to sort of pretend each other don't exist, and it's not just those two. I mean, I see this like uh, somebody who works for one of these um, churches in New York said, "Yeah, you're absolutely right." And, and what you have to understand is um, there are all these networks that have like huge. They're like huge kind of pump pyramids or mountains, and the peak of each mountain essentially extends into New York. But they're sort of independent mountains. And so they sort of came from different tribes, came from different places, uh, but they're really independent. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. But it's just something like pick these different churches and just see if they ever have anything to do with each other. Do they ever collaborate on anything? Do they ever, like, talk about it? It's really interesting how they don't. And it's there does seem to be something hyper-tribal about this Protestantism. Um, another another uh, kind of example of that is two men who are both really globally known for their expertise in urban churches. Uh, one of them is Tim Keller, again, uh, who, you know, really high, highly, highly, highly influential in the urban church movement and kind of his, his neck of the woods. Another one is a guy by the name of Ray Bakke. Uh, Ray Bakke. 
Um, he wrote a book called A Theology as Big as the City. Um, he, he's I've met him. He's a really interesting guy. Um, I'm not as knowledgeable about Ray Bakke, but, you know, when you listen to him talk, just two super knowledgeable guys, um, thoughtful guys on kind of urban church and urban church around the world. I mean, both these guys have like global perspectives on the issue. So I'm like, man, there has to have been a panel somewhere where somebody got the two of them together to have them engage in a dialogue or a conversation about urban church. I couldn't find it. I Googled Tim Keller and Ray Bakke. I could not find where they had talked about each other, whether they had kind of riffed on each other's work, engaged on each other's work, where they had appeared together on a panel. It does look like once, I did find once where there was a a, a conference that they both spoke at, uh, I think, but I don't recall them being together. And again, some of these things are just my Googling. You know, I'm sure there's eminently possible that I have missed, you know, oh, yeah, there was this conference back then uh, where they talked together or, oh, you missed this article where Carl Lentz had this to say about Tim. So I'm not saying that I 100%, you know, searched the entire internet or that I did deep, deep, deep investigations, but I went through, you know, a few pages of Google results. And I do think we have to keep in mind, you know, just keep in mind, Google has made it much harder to find old stuff on the internet. Um, Google has become a much, much less effective search engine than it used to be. Uh, that's a, maybe a topic for an, another um, conversation. They've made it much harder to find old stuff on the internet. Nevertheless, you know, I did some do, I did some research here and I couldn't find anything. And I just thought, again, wow, this is really interesting. Wouldn't you think, because I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of in the, you know, professionally I've been in the urbanism world for a, a while. So you go to conferences and there's like three different experts and oftentimes they will interact with each other. You know, they might have a debate. They might have this. Now they tend to, of course, be very, very friendly with each other. I'm not suggesting that, you, you know, there's going to be some knockdown, drag out, you know, ultimate fighting championship style debate, but you would think that, there would be some interactions between um, some of these people uh, that don't ordinarily interact. You know, a few years ago, um, the now disgraced pastor James McDonald did a, uh, a sort of a talk show series, a short talk show series on video called The Elephant Room, where he brought a lot of these big mega church pastors together to have them debate certain issues. It actually became very, very controversial. There's no need to go into that. But I thought it was interesting. It's like, hey, let's get Mark Driscoll, another guy who sort of uh, had a, a fall. Let's get Stephen Furtick. Let's get these guys. And we're just going to sit here together and talk about issues. I thought that was kind of interesting to try to get people who might be um, loosely in the same world, but maybe some different perspectives to, to talk about things. And so I just find that interesting that Protestant Christianity seems to exist almost entirely in autonomous tribes that don't seem to have all that much to do with each other. And again, going back to our first point where nationalism is constantly denounced because we are told that we are supposed to have identities as Christians across all of these national racial boundaries and have that tremendous amount of solidarity when you're not even showing solidarity with other Christians who are in your, you know, not in your immediate tribe who are just right down the street from you. Um, that just kind of like rings hollow a little bit. It's like, 
what is going on there. So these are just a few things that um, that I've noticed. And again, I, I don't I don't per se think all of these are indications of something nefarious or something like that. I don't want to say that at all. But I do think that they make you go, hmm, why should I identify more with my city and less with my country? Who decided that the city is the geography and the group of people that I should identify the most with? Why are we entirely focused on starting new churches instead of renewing old ones if our mission in the city is explicitly a renewal mission? Um, Why do these people seem to not have much to do with each other? I I think they're just interesting questions. Again, they're kind of my disturbance in the force questions a little bit. And, uh, you know, as I go along, I learn more. I'll put more pieces together. But I think it's just something for you to start noticing. And I, I, you know, if you want to, again, if you want to be able to do what I do, Aaron, how do you generate these insights? One of the things I do is I just look for anomalies, things that just don't totally add up. And again, they're not always easy to see. I'm not always the one that comes up with them. Sometimes I'll hear a comment someone makes. I'm like, oh, you know what? That really is interesting. And then I'll start pursuing that thread and start weaving them together. But, um, but uh, be that as it may, I think this will probably be the last podcast uh, in this series. I may do some more. Again, I may come back to it. Uh, get You know, urban churches and over there may, be, may need new developments. Um, again, the Carl Lentz thing is like a big deal, uh, I think, in the Hillsong world. Uh, but um, but I think we'll probably start something next week. Uh, I got another series I'm going to line up on, on the uh, Republican Party and the conservative movement, about which I am extremely negative. I wanted to save that for after the election, lest anyone think that I'm trying to manipulate you. Uh, but I might not start that immediately. Maybe I'll just do a few independent episodes uh, regardless. Thanks to all of you who have left a rating or review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. I think we're up to like 46 five-star ratings. I really appreciate that. So if you haven't yet, please leave your honest rating uh, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or uh, wherever else you consume. It really helps people uh, discover it. Please spread the word. And I hope you're liking it. Again, send me your feedback. You know, the, the newsletter's been going a while. So I feel like I've got a little bit of a sense of what people like, what they don't like, what works. And, you know, I'm constantly going to be exploring there. But I'm a little new uh, to the podcast, right? This is a new podcast and the podcast medium is very different from the newsletter medium. So your feedback is very welcome. You can always email Aaron at AaronWren.com and uh, look out for the new masculinist coming out, uh, coming out tomorrow because it's going to have some big news and big announcements. Again, thank you for listening.